Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome, Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted, built, and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 103. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Sometimes in life, there are times when you just have to figure things out and make something happen, regardless of how much direction you have. And our guest this episode, Jason Barrett, has continuously seemed to execute when it mattered throughout his career. Without any true intentions of a career in sports talk radio, Jason would embark on a journey across the U.S., starting in the Hudson Valley area of New York as an on-air talent, then moving on to behind the scenes, first as a producer for ESPN Radio, and then as a program director of five different stations, including four in the top 20 markets. He would eventually make his way back to New York as he now owns and operates Barrett Sports Media, a full-service sports media consulting company which helps brands and individuals enjoy success in the audio space. And you'll also find him serving as the chief editor of the sports radio industry's premier website, sportsradiopd.com. Here's episode 103 with Jason Barrett. Jason, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with me here. I greatly appreciate it. And no, I'm it. still in time away from your networking and connecting. You're the master connector <laughs> in the uh, sports radio industry. I don't know that's saying much. Oh, that's saying a lot. <laughs> how, how does that make you feel when people come to you looking for advice, mentorship, and you've been in it for 20 years, but how does that make you feel knowing that you're impacting so many different people? Here's um, how I look at it. One, I love that people care enough about what they do for a living, that they want to talk to others who they respect and get some an outside perspective. Because when you're inside of a building or if you've been around the same people for a long time, it's not that those messages aren't important. They are. But we all like to hear somebody else's opinion. And so because I've been a programmer, because earlier in my career was on the air, I have an understanding of what goes into doing this at a high level. And so when people come to me that I respect in the business, wanting to know what I think, of course, it makes you feel good that they value your feedback. That being said, like, you know, I tell them at the end of the day, it's about connecting with your boss. It's about connecting with your audience. It's about connecting with your advertisers. If you do that, it ain't going to matter what Jason Barrett (laughs) thinks. So, you know, I can give you my perspective on what will help you get better advertising, you know, success and rating success and keep your boss happy. But you have to apply it and do it because that's ultimately how you're going to be measured. Now, you seem to have an eye for talent that's just starting out. So are there certain characteristics and traits that you see that you feel that might parlay into success in this industry? A lot of it, you know, goes back to when I, when I listen to somebody on the air, I've always talked about what I call the three L's. Laugh, learn, be likable. Do you sound like someone I want to get to know? Can you make me laugh during a conversation? Will you teach me something when you're talking to an audience? Uh, if you have those three you know, qualities, then it comes down to work ethic. 
passion. You know, are you a unique thinker? Like there, there are certain guys like Colin Coward's brain just goes to a different level than a lot of other guys. It's why he's so gifted at what he does. Uh, not everybody's going to have that. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't find your own space and be uniquely talented too. Uh, but so, you know, you can't teach work ethic, you can't teach passion, you can't teach energy. You've got to have those, uh, those traits if you're a talent. But what I look for is, does this person make me want to spend the next 15 minutes with them? If you can pull me into that conversation in two to three minutes, that's a good start. And then you build from there to see, hey, all right, you got 15 good minutes, can you give me 30? Can you get 30? Can you give me 60? And that, that's ultimately what you look for. Because we've all been at some point in our lives, if you work in this business, young, inexperienced, trying to figure it out, probably making a ton of mistakes. I was on the air. I was not a great host. Uh, that's why I became a programmer and now a consultant. But, you know, it, it's not easy to do three to four hours a day talking for a living. And, you know, even people who manage these people sometimes don't understand how hard that is to talk to an audience 20 hours a week and be great 20 hours a week. You can do 20 hours a week. Don't mean you do 20 great hours a week. And so, you know, those who do it, I have a, you know, a fond appreciation for because I know how hard the job is. It is amazing the difference of what you think it is versus what it really is when you are sitting down in front of a microphone and to your point have to talk and you really don't have any interaction with the public right so it's very difficult so that's such an amazing skill set that some of these people have i worked with uh brandon tierney who's on cbs sports network in san francisco for about a year and a half and he used to say you know one of the most uh fun challenges every day is he would walk into an office with a blank canvas and have a chance to paint and he'd go i have no idea if i'm going to create a picasso painting or if this thing is going to be embarrassing and get us kicked out of the office today. But I get a chance to paint this blank canvas. And it's it's so true when you go in every day, you know, it's all what's in your head. It's all what you read with your eyes, what you see when you're watching sports, what you, you know, think might be interesting to people. And then the thing that you thought was the fifth or sixth nugget on a show becomes hotter than the first two things. And so... That's, I mean, the beauty of sports is people have such a vested interest in it. They care about the topic. But still, at the end of the day, it's about how you present it as a host and what you see and how you articulate your messages. And, you know, and also being smart enough to adjust because when things happen that you don't think are going to be hot, that you think are throwaways, and when they catch fire, you better be able to adjust to those and run with it because otherwise you could leave a lot of good stuff on the floor. Have to be fluid, and it is true artistry, some of these guys that are able to do what you just said. So you mentioned passion and this pull towards sports. So how about you? What was your journey like growing up, Jason Barrett? When did you fall in love with sports and then sports radio? Right. So I was always a sports. uh, I always loved sports. You know, from the time I was five years old, I was reading the New York Daily News and New York Post. So I, I loved New York sports. I played sports when I was, uh, you know, elementary school, then junior high. I uh, got out of it when we uh, moved upstate to uh, high school. It was one of those, like, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, where, you know, people existed on every block. And then my family moved about 70 miles north, where it took you four miles to just go see human interaction. <laughs> just so to see some other people. At that point, I said, I'm not on board with this move. And so I kind of said, all right, I'm not going to play sports. I'm tuning this whole thing out. Eventually, later on, I'm like, why did I do that? It would have been a better experience. But anyway... I always loved sports, always watched sports. 
uh, it was around my teens I started listening to WFAN in New York. You know, they started the format. Uh, started, That's the epicenter. Yeah, and I, I said, wow, this is really cool. These guys are getting paid to talk about sports. I love sports. I read the newspaper. It's no different than what these guys are doing, except what they're doing in print, I can't feel the passion and the emotion. I could hear it on the radio. And I was, you know, lucky enough at that time to grow up listening to Mike and the Mad Dog, which was a tremendous show. And the way those two guys just sucked you in to the show was amazing. And so I got into it because of that. I didn't really know I was going to work in sports radio until my early 20s. Um, at that time, I was looking to be a musician. And I was playing drums in a band, and I thought we were going to get a record deal. And one day, uh, my guitar player comes in. We had just played this show with a national act. Uh, and... Uh, you know, we had some people looking at us, and he says, hey, guys, this is probably bad timing, but uh, I found uh, my calling in life. It's to uh, play music at the church, and I don't want to go on the road, and I don't want to be part of what we're doing. And it was, it was actually the best thing that could have happened, because what I learned in that moment was when you're in a band, your success or failure is tied to three other people. You're essentially in four marriages, if those marriages aren't strong, your career is over. And with radio, it's not that way. You control your success or failure. If you're willing to move, if you're willing to put the hours in, if you're willing to be creative and watch things and put the time in, if you've got some talent, you can, you can go places. And so it was such a wake-up call. I went, man, I love music. I, I absolutely thought I would do that. Uh, but I don't want to be the guy changing bands every three years, living out of, you know... The, and all the of these bus. different marriages right. that you're talking about. Right. I'm hey, like, it's listen, hard enough with one marriage. Right. I can't I, imagine. I don't want to be divorced every two or three years. It's exhausting. <laughs> so, you know, I decided, look, I've always liked radio. Um, maybe this is an opportunity to go look at it. And I didn't know the first place to start. You know, I'm in the outskirts of New York. It's not like you call up WFAN and go, listen, I... I want to do this, and I think you might need some help. Yeah, you're going to need go, me, right? Yeah, they're going, we got everybody in America calling us, so you stay in the, you know, the sticks of New York. So I found a small station in my, uh, my hometown area. Station went off the air at night. Perfect. Great place to learn. And I went in, and I did everything from writing and reporting news to uh, music bits, production, selling advertising, marketing, and I eventually got on the air, started hosting a sports show once a week for an hour. Then it went to two. Then it became a five-day-a-week thing that was on for an hour, expanded to three hours a day, started to get into the marketing side and do some deals with a, a memorabilia guy to bring athletes to a mall to, like, generate buzz and revenue for the station. And so I really learned the business on the— From the inside. From the inside. And, and I stress that because there are so many people today, you get inside a big station and it's awesome. You grew up on the station, but you're not going to learn a ton of those things. Uh, I learned that because I was in a station that you had to do that to survive. Like I didn't get on the air with my first one hour show until I had four clients ready to come on board. It was the pay to play. Once I proved that I belonged on the air, then I didn't have to worry about that anymore. But I was glad I had to do it because it taught me when I got to my next opportunity, I got a uh, I was doing a wrestling show once a week, which did really well, uh, which I'll tell you a fun story about that in a minute. Uh, when I was doing the show, I remember I did a live broadcast from WrestleMania in Seattle 
and uh, the station said, look, we'll, we'll pay your cost to go there, but you've got to sell some sponsorships. I said, not a problem. I've done this before. And I went out, I sold out every spot on that station at Sunday night, 9 to 11. We generated over $10,000 in revenue off of a show that a very dedicated audience was listening to, but we're in, They had to be very loyal. Oh, they were. I mean, my ratings went up 144% from the time I took over. To, to, and it was insane. I'm looking at it, I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah, how is this happening? I can't believe people have this much interest on a Sunday night to this stuff. But so anyway, my point is... All that learning on the ground floor prepared me. So when I went on to bigger things, like when I got hired at ESPN, I spent two years working for ESPN Radio, worked with uh, Doug Gottlieb, John Seibel, Freddie Coleman, Eric Casillas. The Dan Patrick Show was the biggest one. Um, but when I got there, I remember they said, we just want you to focus on producing the show. I said, are you sure? I can book guests. That's I can very do limited production. based I, on your skill sets, I, I've right? I've done production. I've done guest booking. I've done hosting. I can. All I have to do is produce. Just create the content with the host. That's it. Write, write the teases. And then what I loved about that job um, and why I bring up the point about the ground floor is when you get to higher levels, those kind of networks, they don't want the jack of all trades. They want the master of one. They want the guy who can be a great producer with a great show. They don't care that you can sell advertising. They have sellers who can sell more advertising than you ever will. So that's why the great places are great, because they allow their people to focus on one thing, or maybe two things now, but social media being a bigger focus. But at that time, like when you're at a small station, you know, in market 150, you're going to have to do five or six things to survive and get yourself to even be recognized there. But when you've done all that, I can't tell you how much better prepared you are when you get to a higher stage. And now you've got all that experience of having done so much that it allows you to just hone your craft yeah. and work on one thing. But did you miss some of the aspect of having your hands in all of these different things? No, because here's the thing. What I started doing is I really took that same passion and energy I had for doing all those things and I put it into I want to be great at guest booking. I want to be great at writing teases. I want to be great at making sure I manage talent. Uh, and, and I want to be great at creating ideas in this show. To, so it wasn't that I didn't still have the same you know amount of time spent. It was just spent on three or four more things. Like I remember when the story came out um, in the New York Daily News, they broke this story. It was the mid-2000s that Mark McGuire uh, was involved in steroids. And there was a steroid dealer who had came clean. Uh, and the FBI, who had been tracking this steroid dealer, and the story appeared in the Daily News. And everybody in America has talked about the story. And that Sunday night, the story broke Sunday morning. I had the FBI agent on the air who was in witness protection on the air. And I had everybody in the network calling me going, where the hell did you find this guy? Yes, how did this happen? And I said, well, you know, you got to work at it. Uh, I said, listen, he's well, out there. that's a little different, though. I'm like, but, but this goes back to, you know, I didn't have to worry about selling ads and selling, you know, doing all these other things. What I did is I, I've got one thing today. I've got a chance to make an impression to where everybody in this network takes notice of what we're doing. When Todd Helton went off for the first time on Wayne Hagen accusing him of steroids, he was on game night. When Ricky Williams retired, that night is probably what earned me the promotion to the Dan Patrick show because literally it happened at like 6.30 
and we had already taped 10 interviews. And I told the guys, every one of those interviews are irrelevant. We are going live, nothing but Ricky Williams coverage tonight. And that night we had Seth McKinney, his teammate, Robert Smith, who had also retired early, Mike Ditka, who had traded a whole draft for him, Randy Mueller, who was part of that process to trade for him. Uh, we had Chris Mortensen, who uh, was working the story, Lee Steinberg, his agent, uh, Dave Wanstead, his coach, everybody on that show that night. And all I told my guys is, you need to know this story content-wise, every angle. This is all that matters right now. It's going to be the number one thing driving conversation. I am going to work with one of my uh, assistant producers, and we are going to kill it tonight with the biggest names in the, in the country. And we did. And I remember SportsCenter that night, Stuart Scott literally led off talking about big news out of Miami. Ricky Williams is retiring, and it's left the Dolphins stunned. And the first thing that plays is Seth McKinney calling him out, saying he's a dog, he quit on us. And it was a reflection of everything we had done. And that was something that you had set right. up to get that interview. And, and the reason I bring that up isn't to like pat myself on the back for guest booking. Anybody can do that. It's when those moments happen and you are thinking about what matters to an audience. What are people talking about? What do they care about right now? You've got to think of every possible angle. I want the running back who also retired early. I want the head coach who's coached him. I want the guy who traded a draft for him. I want Joe Horn, who's his best friend, to talk about. You've got to think of 10 angles because right now you're live. You're going. There's, there's no time to like sit there and go, just give me eight hours and I'll put together a plan. No, you better know your stuff. And when you do and you get aggressive and you start working those things out, when you look back, we had a six-hour show, which is insane. Um, at the end of the night, when you look back at six hours and you go, we had 12 names that any show in America right now would take one of them. Like, that's when you know you've done something. And when the next day you come into work, people are like, that's, that's gold standard kind of content that you guys created. Then you feel like, hey, this is why you do the job. And that goes back to this whole artistry thing that, I mean, you were very fluid and moved within the moment and knew to capitalize on that. But you also had to have this Rolodex right, of right. <laughs> well, just calling people. Is this just something that you build And here's the thing. Remember time? this. This is a Sunday night, 7 to 1, okay, 7 p.m. to 1 a.m. Uh, like people sometimes think, oh, you're at ESPN. There's probably like some magical Rolodex and you've got 50,000 numbers. You just call anybody and they say yes. Not true. Okay, you've got to dig for numbers. you got to uh, – that's one thing that I see a lot of producers today. They – uh, it's nice when you have the hotline and the phone number shows up and the guest calls in and you track it. Great. That's a nice advantage. Um, it's nice when you have people in your building that you've worked with that have also gathered numbers and you share contact. That's great. What you don't see are the guys who, like me, I can tell you, I used to subscribe to a guy who posts uh, athlete addresses across <laughs> the country for retired guys. I'd find every one of them. Guess what? The night that the Red Sox won the World Series and I got Keith Folk on the air after he shut the door. You know how it happened? I found his dad's number in Iowa, called his dad, asked him to relay a message. He did, and I got him on the air. It's you got to look for angles. So it's and any anything. angle. You're you trying to uncover whatever. Go, like the, the guys who think, let me call the Red Sox PR. Really? You know how many calls the Red Sox PR are taking right now? A thousand. Do you think they're going to react in the next 45 minutes to an hour to help you? No. They've got the world looking for their stuff. You better have another way. And so I'd look, family. I'd, I'd trade with other producers. I'd trade with other talent. Hey, what if I gave you five from here and you give me five from here? I'd have guys send me their Rolodex. I'd say, 
dude, I'm not sending you my Rolodex, but I'll give you, I'll give you <laughs> I'll some give good you numbers. Yeah, but we can trade. Over the course, of, like today, and, and, you know, numbers change, people change. So it's, I can't say they're all valid, but I've got like 50,000 phone numbers. I and, bet you do. And, and from doing it. And even if 25,000 of them don't, don't exist anymore, there's <laughs> still 25,000. That's not bad. So my thing was always look for any way to get access to information because at the end of the day, when it comes to this business, whether you're selling an opinion, selling a guest, selling a piece of sound, it's all about information. People love information. They want to know the perspective of the guest and what, you know, what he was feeling or seeing while he was in the moment. They want the host to tell them to look for something when they're watching the game that night. It goes back to if you have the, the right information to work with, you're going to put yourself in a good spot. And so when those situations happen, whether it's the World Series, Ricky Williams, you know, any of those, the Mark McGuire story, you've got to first have a number of different angles to pursue. You've got to have the work ethic to go do it. Like that FBI agent took me 10 hours that day to get done. And when I got it done, literally, he called me and he said, I don't know how the heck you found me, which is terrifying. Yes. Um, but if you found me, it means others will. So here's the deal. I'm going to do the interview. You're going to relay a message to everyone in ESPN to not even attempt to call me or my family. <laughs> and hopefully me coming on your show reduces that noise. And I had like 10 shows calling me from TV going, we need this guy on SportsCenter. We got, I said, good luck, man. It ain't happening. Uh, you have the audio. I, my one promise to the guy for him to come out of witness protection is that... That is still amazing it, that you tracked this guy down. It, it, it was a lot of work. Uh, it was digging through a lot of channels. But the point is, they're all out there. You just, if, if you're willing to put the time in, you can, get, you can generate results. But you gotta, you got to want it. If you don't want it, and you're, like to me, there was no thought, we're not going to get this guy. The question was, am I getting him to tape at 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, or are we getting him live? But we have a six-hour show tonight. It's 9 a.m. in the morning when this story comes out. This show doesn't end tonight without this guy. That's all that matters. So it's just a matter of when we're getting this guy. Right. And we're I, I mean, it. I remember calling John Seibel and Freddie Coleman that day, and I said, listen, you have one responsibility today. You have better know this story inside and out and have the best questions you've ever asked a guest prepared. Because if you don't, you have let down this entire network for the spot I'm going to make sure you have tonight. And they're like, how the heck are you getting this guy? I said, don't worry about it. You just be on your that's A right. game tonight. Hey, that's my problem. You worry right. about uh, right. the content. I'll do the hard work. And it doesn't mean your, jo- your job is way more important. It doesn't matter if I get the guy on the phone. It matters that you do the right content with him. And they did. They did a great job with it. And, you know, but but it goes back to drive. Anybody can do that. I'm no, you know, I'm no exception. You just got to you got to want it and you got to go do it. So how often are you helping coach the talent in terms of as a producer? Yeah, I think we should go this type of angle as far as the questions. Or are you letting the when, talent come up with that? Well, those questions a, that and, you mentioned. And here's the answer to that. It's all different with each person. I'm not going to sit there and tell Dan Patrick how to do an interview. He's one of the best to ever do it. I may suggest a few things, and quite frankly, he's going to probably use 90% of his own stuff, and he should. The guy's brilliant. I mean, he's one of the best interviewers to do the job. Uh, but where I, what I learned working with him, which has been tremendous to my career, when Dan Patrick, the reason why Dan Patrick was great 
at interviewing. First of all, he could do a live interview with anybody and be great. But one thing I really loved is he would tape a lot of stuff when we worked together at ESPN. And I remember we would sit there, we would have Latanian Tomlinson taped for 35 minutes. And it was all good. And Dan would say, what seven minutes was great? I'm like, what do you mean, what seven minutes was great? We did 35 great <laughs> minutes. No, no, no. We did 35 good minutes. 28 of those are good. Seven of those are great. Where are the seven great minutes? And at first, when I got on the show, I had not worked that way. I had worked on a six-hour show. We're doing 16 interviews a night. I don't have the time to sit there and analyze every single detail of every question. But when I, when I was saying before about ESPN and how they want you to focus on being a great producer, being a great talent. They don't want you doing all these sorts of things. When I got on his show, I really started to learn, listen, this is what a great interview should sound like. Okay, so now I'm sitting there with an index card. Dan asked about this. Dan asked about that. Then we got to this. Then we got to that. We'd step back after the interview. All right, so we had 12 questions we asked. These are the eight that I thought were okay, but these are the four that I think have to be in there. What do you think? I agree with you on three. I disagree on this one. I think this has to be in. Okay, great. By the time it was all said and done, you'd have a seven or eight minute piece on the air. It sounded tremendous. And in this day and age, and back then, I mean, we didn't have like we do today where you could say for the extended conversation, go, you know, social media post and all this stuff. This is back in like 2004, 2005. But now you could put 35 minutes on that. You could put all that other content up. It doesn't mean you'd put it all on the radio. You'd put the seven on. And so I I learned that, but, you know, that was him. Other guys where I may work with Freddie Coleman on coming up with questions just because that was our give-and-take relationship. Um, I may talk to Brandon Tierney and Eric Davis about their strategy with Bruce Bochy the first time he's coming on. But once we get past that and I know that they've got the plan, I'm not going to sit there and – you know, overcoach them. You got to let guys do what they're naturally good at. Doesn't mean there aren't times they make mistakes and you call them out and go, why would you go with this? Look at how you lost the flow of this. And and that's part of the regular relationship. Um, if, if a talent needs something, hey, I want to bounce something off you. Do you think this is good? Of course, the door is open. But I find that, you know, when you get to, when I'm, when I programmed in San Francisco, it's market four. Okay, you're not teaching guys more times than not how to do a radio show in Market 4. You're teaching me when I'm in Market 150, all right? (laughs) And at ESPN, they're teaching the the behind-the-scenes guys how to do certain things so you can wind up helping the shows best, which is tremendous. Most local stations don't have that kind of infrastructure. So when you're dealing with guys on, you know, a a day-to-day basis and you trust them to do shows, you got to let them do what they're good at. And sometimes... When they make mistakes, call them out, hold them accountable. But more times than not, they get things right. There's a reason they're there. They're talented. They belong there. And then it's your job just to work through and, you know, tighten up some spots rather than sit there. Try. If i got to teach a guy how to do it, an interview in San Francisco, you they're shouldn't be on the, the air right in person. San Francisco. That's right. So what do you feel makes a great interview then? Um, it, you know, it goes back to the learning aspect and laughing aspect, um, depending on who the guest is. Do you pull something out of them that the the listener didn't know beforehand that's really unique and valuable to what they're going to talk about that day? Uh, is there a moment that happens on the show that was unexpected uh, that results in laughter? Like I remember, and this is one of the cool things about when you're trying to do things to make a show more interesting. Like most shows would 
say we have Wayne Gretzky on the air, and that's a big deal, right? Back in especially 2004, the guy was a pretty big deal. Uh, when I worked with DP, we would talk about what could we do that would be unique. And we come up with, okay, so why don't you ask him a question about Mark Messier? And it'll lead to something with him, you know, being follically challenged because Oberman used to use that line <laughs> on SportsCenter. So he'll say something, whatever he says, I'm going to have Messier on the line holding that he doesn't know Messier's on the line holding. He says it about that, you know, he says something, yeah, Mark's probably got, you know, the biggest head in, you know, all of professional sports, definitely more shine on it than others. Well, <laughs> let's, that's interesting, Wayne. Let's see how Mark feels about that. And you hear Gretzky start to laugh and just go, oh, that's wrong, Patrick. And you know, you can feel it, that the audience is going to feel that, you know. Is it, it's a, it wound up, you know, Messier comes on and goes, oh, you know, great one. You know, you're not so great anymore, killing me on national air. Uh, but it's a two-minute moment that makes somebody's day, and they wind up talking about it, like, oh, my God, you wouldn't believe what they did on the show today. And so it's, it's just looking for moments to have fun or to teach people stuff. That's what the good ones do. And at this point, now you're producing, but you have this, I guess, passion to build radio stations. Yeah, so after uh, when I spent, you know, the two years in Bristol, I, uh, I loved producing, worked with a lot of great talent. Uh, I, as I mentioned, you know, my early background from hosting and selling and all that, I knew eventually I wanted to run my own station. I didn't think it would be in two years when I got to Bristol. I thought I'd be there for five to ten years. As I was going through, I was just like, I think I really could do this. Now, did and, you always think that ESPN was just going to be a stop, that you would continue past ESPN? Because a lot of people no, I, here's the thing. When ESPN I went to ESPN is the Mecca. When I went to ESPN, I thought, I could build something here long-term. Um, I do want to ultimately manage. Uh, would that be at ESPN? Maybe. Like, and so I was very open to that, and I had hoped I'd be there for a long time. I loved working there. It was a great company. Uh, but as I started to go, I realized I want to run a local station. I miss, miss the local interaction. I like seeing the, the passion of 10,000 people show up for an event. I want to have day-to-day -day interaction with local sales and those kind of things. And the one thing, look, one of the best parts of working on a national show, you're not constantly under the pressure of your local ratings, okay? When you're dealing with a national show and you're on in 100 markets, you're great in New York, you're down in L.A., you're up in Dallas, you're down in Chicago. Like, there's no, uh, which one matters, which one doesn't, right? When you're in a local market and your book is up or down, you're either high-fiving and throwing a party or you're, like, <laughs> hiding for cover under the cubicle. So I love that passion and that, that challenge of doing stuff and knowing that, good or bad, you're being recognized for what you did right or what you did wrong. And I don't mind defending when we're down. I don't mind not taking credit when we're good because I think, you know, steady wins the race. You've got to do this consistently. It's like I tell this to talent. It's like being a baseball player. No one cares that you won a book or two. That's like winning the first, you know, three months of a baseball season. It's about the back of the baseball card. I want to look at, do you have 12 seasons? Yeah, what do those stats look like? Okay, yeah. if you don't have that, anyone could have a good year. You know, can you put together five? Can you become a voice of influence in a local market? Can you become the attraction that an advertiser says, I want to put six figures on this guy because I know he can move product. 
Like that's when you have something, you know. So from that standpoint, um, I, I love the local aspect of it. And so had a few opportunities come up when I was in Bristol. People had asked me about programming. Because, you know, look, when you're around a show like Dan Patrick, it's going to help, no doubt. Uh, they're, hey, if he's doing that show, maybe he could do more. And I had some local background of doing some stuff. So it, it, it helped a little bit. And then ultimately I got a... Got an opportunity uh, in Philadelphia. I got hired. Uh, the station that's now 97.5, The Fanatic. Uh, I was the first guy brought in to run what was then Sports Talk 950. Um, unfortunately, I was only there six months. My family did not like Philadelphia. And it was the one time I said, look, I'm going to do what's best for family rather than the career. And uh, that's what led me to St. Louis, ultimately. So was it a good decision then? Oh, yeah. It, it, in the end, I mean, I'll still to this day wonder what would have happened if I had stayed. <laughs> of course. Some of the things that I wanted to do, they wound up doing in the next two to three years, and they all start to, to go pretty well. Uh, but those are the things, like, had, had I done them then, maybe they wouldn't have worked, you know. So, so much of this is you have no – if you had done it two years earlier, maybe it bombs. If you do it two years later, someone else has success with it, God bless them, you know. That's right. So, so much I, of life is timing, it is. as we talked about. You can't, you can't predict those things. And so I am a believer that, you know, this path you're on, you have no idea where it's going to take you. You just – you have to make decisions in the moment that – feel right to you and you gotta you know bruce gilbert used to tell me all the time trust your gut and it's the most simple advice but it's the most honest and best advice because anything you do in this business is going to be a result of what you say yes and no to and you know there are stations that i thought i was going to program didn't happen and ultimately wound up being uh, even though those stations wound up being great staying great wound up not being great for me because I went on to better opportunities um, that I didn't see at the time. So 101 ESPN is one of the stations I built in St. Louis. That station today is celebrating 10 years. It's been, you know, a Marconi nominee. It's continued to stay great. I, I did the first two years of hard labor to get that thing into a really good spot. But it's since been taken even further by Hoss Newbert, who was my APD at the time, who's now the PD. He's done tremendous work. That's one thing I love. Um, when you do great work, but you also lift others behind you up, and they go on to have – it's like in pro sports when you see an NFL head coach and the assistant gets his own team, and then he winds up having success. Like, I don't want to be Bill Belichick in that regard, <laughs> where people look at me and they go, even if they do, and this is, you know, obviously I'm highly debatable, but, you know, I don't want to be seen as Belichick with a failed coaching tree. <laughs> I want to be seen as the guy who was a with good a head coach tree, that's everybody with a lot of guys who went further. Like, when I can look and go – Hoss Newper is programming 101 ESPN. Jeremiah Crow is programming KMBR. And those guys were behind me and now running stations and doing a good job. That, to me, is uh, rewarding. And now I do it, you know, consulting. So now I work with a number of stations in that role to develop programmers. And I love that because I've sat in their chair. I know what goes into making a station great. And when I see guys doing great work uh, that, you know, like I, I had the pleasure of working with Joe Zorbano of WEEI. Three years ago, he was just getting into the job. Today, he's one of the top programmers in America. And to see those kind of things, that's rewarding. So why did you make this shift then to do your own your own thing, the, this so, consultancy that so you had three with years Bear ago, Sports Media? Three years ago, we were uh, four years into the building of 95-7, the game in San Francisco. And the station was in great shape. Uh, when I started that station, we were in 
24th or 27th place. And, uh, you know, we launched August 1st, 2011. I remember telling the staff, I said, guys, we are an expansion team. We are not going to play in the Super Bowl for the next three or four years. It's going to test you. You're going to hate hearing that, but that's the truth. By the time we get to the next four years, <laughs> when my deal is coming up, we will be a top three to top four rated station. My last three books there were fourth, third, and fourth, and it was some of the proudest moments of my career. Had to be. Because um, you look at all the things you went through, all the people who were part of building it, and what one guy was doing to get you from 24th to 17th is just as important as the guy who took it from 8th to 5th. Like, it ain't just about the guy who got the 5th. He doesn't get the 5th if this guy doesn't go through the wall first and take the shots. So to see all that was a, a really proud moment, I, and I knew I had done the job that I set out to do. The, the truth is, the reason I left, um, I loved San Francisco. I loved the game. I had a great time working for Intercom. My son at the time was 13. Uh, he was back in New York. My ex, it was uh, not a good situation. He was, in a, he was around some stuff that shouldn't be around at 13 years old. And so I had to make a choice. Do I stay here continuing to do what I love in a radio station? But if I do, I'm probably signing a three-, four-year deal. That means my kid, who, and by the way, at this point, uh, for those listening who are not familiar with my story, I've written about it before, but if they're not, I used to fly every two weeks from St. Louis or San Francisco to New York, get in on a Friday, come back to San Francisco or St. Louis on a Sunday night. And every two weeks, I'm And this there is to, to spend time To be with there your son. for my son, right. So... I mean, you know, listen, when you're doing that, I'm sleeping in my parents' house because, what, what do you think, I have a second house on the, on the side? No. So I'm flying there, staying at my parents' house, spending time with my son, get back, fly, go do the job for, for another week and a half, go back, fly. And I had done that for nine years. And I just got to the point where I was like, okay, one, I know he's not in a great situation right now. I got to get him out of there. On the other hand, if I do that, the opportunities to program there are probably few. I mean, Mark Chernoff is the godfather of programming. He ain't leaving the fan until he decides he wants to, and that's how it should be. Um, ESPN at that time had Justin Craig running. It. Justin's tremendous. I mean, he used to produce Mike and Mike when I was running DP. I love Justin. So I'm like, well, that ain't happening. And serious, there might have been an opportunity there. I love Steve Cohen. I think he's done an incredible job there. But... I didn't want to just run one channel or two channels. I, I'm a local guy. And so I knew that path really doesn't exist in New York for me if I'm going to go back home. Um, on the other hand, I, I had just said, look, I've been programming for 10 years now. I think I'm, I've programmed on the East Coast. I've programmed on the Midwest. I've programmed on the West Coast. You've I seen understand it all. different audiences That's right. and different people, and I think there's something there. Uh, what that'll be, I don't know yet. But I know this. Number one, before I even worry about programming, I got to get my kid out of that house. That's right. And number two, I've got to make sure that I don't want to be the dad who looks back saying, I missed my entire kid's life. Now we're good because he's 18, but I missed his whole high school years, which are some of the most important, all because I was chasing ratings and, you know, a decent check on the West Coast. And so eventually I just said, look, I, I left San Francisco with nothing lined up. 
Most I don't recommend that to anybody. Like <laughs> yeah, that's a tough okay. But I situation knew just it, to leave. It was bigger than any job. Yeah. So it I was, think this is the second time you've put family ahead of oh, career. Oh yeah. Like the first was you're trying to do what's right. At the time I was married, that eventually led to divorce, which is what led to me for nine years on a plane. Because when I got to St. Louis, I wasn't aware that they would not be coming after I had just told Philadelphia I was leaving. So that that's a whole other thing. I don't want to kill your audience with all my personal drama. But uh, <laughs> so ultimately at that point, you're in St. Louis. You better focus and kill it at this job because at this point, You've already left Philadelphia. You're not going to be a guy who left two programming jobs in the span of six months. You're out of. You're never going to program. So I knew at that point, okay, I'm getting divorced. I'm going to have to do all this, and uh, I'll make it work, which I did. How difficult was that for oh, you through the divorce, though? The, the toughest part is, like, look, obviously, you're, you're dealing with a relationship has reached the end. I could live with that. My son being 1,500 miles, that was rough. On top of it, sitting there going, wait a second, I wouldn't have moved at this time to St. Louis had it not been for this. And now you're feeling, you know, like you're betrayed a little bit. Then I'm going, I'm in the Midwest. I never lived in the Midwest. (laughs) I'm here because I was trying to do something right for everyone else. And in the end, it wound up being tremendous for my career. I wound up loving living in St. Louis. My first year did not because I was going through a lot of personal stuff. But five years later... I, I loved it there. It was hard to leave. So in the end, you know, look, this, as I said before, we're all on some path and you have no idea where it's going to take you. I wound up there and at the time it looked really bad. Uh, five years into it, it looked really good. When I got to San Francisco and I was leaving, it looked like, what are you doing? When I got to New York after San Francisco, my first focus was go get my son. I got a, and, and I did. I got that custody was of my son. number one. That was number one. I said, if the worst thing that comes out of this is that I don't have a job in radio, it ain't the end of the world. I'll make a living. It's, but now I've got the most important thing, which is my kid. After that, then it was, all right, well, I know that there really haven't been anybody outside of one guy. I had a great mentor in Rick Scott who consulted uh, for a number of stations for the last 25 years. Uh, We worked together in St. Louis and San Francisco, and I was a big fan of what he did. And I said, but outside of him, there's 800 stations in this format. There's one guy? That's it? And I said, there's got to be a way to build a business and work with stations. I have too much information and knowledge to share to help people that there's got to be a business there somewhere. And Rick had actually, before I left San Francisco, said, if you choose to go that path, let me know. I'd be happy to help. I realized, even though I could have went to him for help, it wasn't anything anybody was going to be able to do for me. I needed to just do it. It was you. Right. I had to, like, would it be nice if somebody's given recommendations? Of course. But you're not, you're not going to survive that way off of just recommendations. You have to just go into it, say, this is my full-time focus. And you've got to find something different. Like, Rick was a tremendous radio consultant. Well, I'm in a world now where podcasting's different. Social media content's different. Recruiting is still a, a challenge, and you've got to do it all the time. Developing programmers is different now than it was 15 years ago. So there's a lot of things. I said, well, listen, I just walked out of a building. I, I just built a pretty successful Market 4-rated sta- uh, radio station, a Market 20 at the time, now 21 or 22 radio station. There's some stuff here to share. 
Uh, and so ultimately, I just went in. I, uh, I had started building the website, sportsradiopd.com, where I'd write a lot of opinion pieces, some strategy. I had some people early on tell me, you know, you're sharing too much uh, stuff that actually benefits people. You should charge <laughs> for that. I said, here's the problem. If you don't share stuff, they have no reason to read you. And if they don't, if they read you, then you build up a, a, almost an influential type of persona. And so I knew that if I was going to do this, I had to do something different, which was be more of a front-facing consultant than the guy who's in the weeds. And I started doing that writing. I started, uh, you know, I started going on market visits. I started uh, doing a podcast. Now I'm doing an annual conference. I hired a writing staff. And I just knew, it, hey, listen, it's still about content. It's no different. Like we're sitting here in Atlanta doing this during a week when I've released all these top 20 lists for the format. And I've had a few guys joke with me like, man, your timing is impeccable with these lists. I said, that's, that's what a program director does. I look <laughs> at it and I go, design. there's a hundred <laughs> stations all in the same place. On Monday and Tuesday, especially, the place is dead. They're all looking for content. What do they do? They look on Twitter. They look on Facebook. They come to the website. They see a list. They're involved in it or they're not involved in it. It winds up being a conversation. That's strategy. That's no different than when you're creating an event for the NFL draft and you're spending three weeks of promos and liners and trying to figure out what we're going to do to make some noise. Like, it's the same thing. I just program the website like I would a program, program a radio station. And so, you know, look, that's different than some of the stuff that obviously I work with my clients on. You know, when I'm working with stations, we've got very specific things that we're doing. But I love it. And uh, I didn't know that storytelling about the format was going to become, uh, you know, a labor of love that I have been able to at least generate. You know, I look at it like this. If I keep the lights on at home, myself happy, and some people working for me happy, then, then I'm considered that success. Obviously, I want to grow it like anything. But uh, three years in to be where I'm at, I'm, I'm thrilled because three years ago, I had no idea if this was even going to work. Yeah, you had no vision of where this thing could go. Right. How's your relationship with your son, though? Tremendous. Uh, you know, lives with me now. That's, that's the best part. I mean, look, one, uh, one other benefit I always tell people, I, I've had a few stations ask me in the last couple of years, do you want to come here and program this, program that? And I, instantly, as soon as it comes up, I'm flattered that you asked. And I'm going to quickly let you continue your search by telling you no and so you can move on. <laughs> uh, and the reason is, like, listen, my commute, is from my upstairs bedroom to my downstairs office. I love that. Um, I don't think you have to deal with too much traffic. No, I have no commute. I know that the work I'm doing means something to not just one building, but to many buildings. Uh, you know, there, that's, that's the one thing. When you program a station, you can see the results of your work inside that building. But, like, like I'll give you an example. I would sit in some conferences and they'd say, listen, you've the key to success, you've got to have talent tees, right? They've got to tease going to a break. It's critical to hold them over. And I sit there and I go, all right, we're all in here talking about this, and all of us have guys who do that. But I'm listening to Mike Francesa and Tom Tolbert, and I don't know the last time either of them executed a tease. And you know what? They're doing pretty damn well in the ratings and making a ton of revenue. This is not true. 
Now, that doesn't mean that there's not, I believe there's value in a teaser. You better off telling an audience to, something's coming in four minutes and here's why you should come back. Or are you better off just going, a bunch of commercials are coming up, I'll be back when I'm done. <laughs> like, I still think there's value in it, but that doesn't mean it's right. It's not as black and white. Right, as it's it not. Seems and to so be. sometimes in this business, so many think that it's this way or it's that way. No, it's not. It's a, you know what? Teasing is great when it's Mike Greenberg because he's a master at it. Teasing wouldn't be great with Mike Francesa because it's not what he does. But you know what? He can make you hang on his next word where maybe Mike Greenberg's not as gifted at that. So everybody's got different skills that make them really talented at what they do. And so I just try to, like, one of the things I love now is I can listen to a lot of different stations. I can, when I'm working on a story, I can hone in on a few things and find examples to share that I know connect with 50 to 60 program directors and their staffs. And you can't do that when you're in one station. You also, if you're inside one station, you put anything out praising a competitor, forget it. <laughs> you're going to be getting backlash immediately from everybody. So right now I can be independent. I can, you know, that being said, look, I, I try to, one thing I try not to do, I try not to go out there taking shots at stations Unless I feel it's really something that has to be addressed. I mean, I've, I've said, like, there was a story two years ago I wrote, uh, and I know it caused some friction, and I don't apologize for it at all. Uh, there was a station at the time, it was owned by CBS in Las Vegas, and they had, uh, they had missed out on the rights to the Golden Knights. And uh, th- those went across town to the Lotus brand. And CBS sent out an internal memo, this is before they were sold to Entercom, who bought them a few months later. They send out an internal memo telling their whole staff, we're, no, no personality on any of our brands is to even mention the word Golden Knights. And I thought, so wait a second. Las Vegas is getting a professional franchise for the first time in its history. This is something your audience is going to be super excited about. Local people have waited their whole lives for it. Your personality is on the air really want to talk about this and you are being spiteful because you didn't get a business decision in your direction that's wrong and i put a piece out i said why i thought it was complete garbage and sure enough right after putting it out and the you phone got a lot rang, of backlash uh the phone rang 10 minutes after it went live with someone who was not happy about the story <laughs> i told them exactly where i stood on it uh eight hours later the company had changed direction and said, we're not going to do this. Uh, we are going to let our guys... So let them talk and about And now let me tell you why they, they should thank me to this day for that. The Golden Knights became the hottest story in the NHL that year yes, and went did. to the Stanley Cup last year. Can you imagine if... And nobody could have predicted that. But can you imagine had they tried to stick to enforcing their talent and not talk about it? How are you going to do that when Las Vegas is on fire with a Stanley Cup appearance at a team that you told them not to talk about? There's no way. And so those are the only times where I've really... I, I've done that one and I took some, uh, you know, I, I got into some details on the Oakland A's relationship because I was privy to it. But I try not to do that. I try to look at when I'm presenting things, does this help teach something? Does this, if I'm pointing out a problem, does it help provide a solution to solving that problem? So if I tell you that I've looked at the last hundred posts you've put up and you have no engagement on your Facebook platform, and I tell you why I think you're missing that and what you should be doing to change that. Is that not providing a solution? Sure it is. Most of the time people pay me for that. <laughs> but if I'm doing it, it's to try to help. 
right? And so I'll do some of those things uh, because I think that's important to anyone. And like, just because somebody doesn't pay me doesn't mean I don't think there's a reason to do things because they may not pay you today. They may in two years. And, and you have to build that trust and respect. And you only do that by having content. So a lot of it is really that. But there's also, and I want to make sure I address this. There's a lot of people who think, and because, look, I have a sports radio website that, break, that posts news and sometimes breaks it. I'm not interested in being Adam Schefter. I can be Adam Schefter. There's a lot of stuff that people have no idea how much I sit on that I don't go with. Because it's not worth it to me to ruin relationships over a scoop that might get me a few thousand clicks. I, sure. If I wanted to go guns a-blazing, breaking news, I got a lot of people that tell me a lot of stuff. Having that information is what helps when I'm working with that station or a competitor. Or if I don't work with them and they brought me in tomorrow, hey, I'm aware of the, of the market and the situation going on. And this is how I think I can help because I'm aware of these three or four issues. If, if I have that information that's valuable, do I share it all the time? No. I think sometimes talent and PDs and producers, they all think like, let's go to him. He'll get us a piece on there. It'll <laughs> exactly. Be- He's got all the inside scoop. And I'm like, look, I like telling stories. I like telling stories that provide a benefit. I don't like telling stories just to say like, so these guys are doing great. This one sucks. Or, hey, uh, this, you know, because this guy wants to pay me a grand, put him up on the website and give him a ton of love. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. I get those offers a lot. It's nice. I'm probably missing out on a lot of cash, but I, I also have what I call a soul. But you have your principles. That's right. <laughs> that's it. I'm yes. not. I'm not going to sell my my platform, my influence, my beliefs. Just just over that. Well, that's how you build the foundation right. long term. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you have to be true to who you say you are. Like if I when I wrote uh, a piece when Entercom bought CBS, I wrote a piece and said I thought it was good. Right. If Entercom wind up being terrible for the business, I don't change my position. I believed at that time they were going to be great for this, especially for the sports format. Now, over time, I don't know what it's going to be in 10 years. I think they'll do a good job. But if I'm wrong, so be it. I but I have to share what I feel and what I know in that moment and say, here's why I think it's good or bad. And then I, I, you know, ultimately stick to it. And if you know, people want to debate it. That's fine. We all have opinions. That's right. But I try to, you know, at least present an informed opinion when I'm writing pieces. And hopefully and so far, so good. People seem to like it. Now, what's the funny wrestling story that you had referred to <laughs> earlier? We got so to hear this that. Is, <laughs> so this is going to be a really good tale for anyone listening to your podcast who's getting in this business, doing something right now that they don't love with the goal of one day doing something else. So wrestling today, if you look at podcasts, they're through the roof. If you look at wrestling activity on websites today, tremendous activity. Like they, they do awesome numbers. Back in 2000, well, when I got to ESPN, it was 2004. So this is before that. Like 1998 to 2004, I'm doing a wrestling show on a local station in upstate New York. Okay, There were probably 10 around the country. And this is like in the infancy of the internet where it's really starting, especially with wrestling. It was like the place where everybody turned to for information because there was no way to get it. Nobody was doing radio shows on wrestling. I was one of a few. I started breaking a lot of news on wrestling. And there are a lot of wrestlers who still don't even know this. 
I broke the story on WWF at the time buying WCW. They, um, there was a guy, Sean Stasiak, who was in that company, who was on my radio show on Saturday, and I asked him one simple question. Where, do you, where does your status stand right now with working with the WWF? He said, it's funny you just asked that, because I literally just signed my contract, FedExed it back to the company, and I, with 23 other wrestlers, will be at WrestleMania tomorrow night. Vince McMahon... The story spreads like wildfire. Like it was so big, my website crashed. I couldn't get it back <laughs> up. I had over, uh, literally, over the span of like two hours, a hundred thousand hits. The damn thing just kept crashing, and I'm like, oh my god! I like I had no idea, and I got a call from the WWF, who were not thrilled that that story came out, and I'm like. I asked him one question. I didn't know he was going to spill the beans, but hey, listen, I'm not apologizing. That was his answer. He could have answered that anyway. He chose to lay it all out there. They actually changed the storyline for WrestleMania, and it's well documented. Like Chris Jericho's talked about it. Uh, all these guys have talked about what was planned for WrestleMania got changed off of that news coming out. So I knew I was on to something. I mentioned earlier, our ratings for that wrestling show were up 144% from when I took over. And, and I can't tell you it was the most entertaining show. It was just, <laughs> it was a niche and it, it had its audience. And so what happened is, as we're doing this thing, and I'm realizing we've got something brewing here. I started making as much money with advertising on my website for the wrestling show as I was making at my radio station which at that point was not a lot. <laughs> but still, it was more. Right. I'm sitting there going, there's something here if I'm making as much money doing this as I am doing this. And so I started thinking, there's got to be a way to nationally syndicate this. And I started reaching out to contacts uh, in, in the business, even people I didn't know, just to say, hey, I don't know if you've ever thought about syndicating a show, but I want to introduce myself in the program, give you some backstory on it. And uh, I put these packages together, send them out to corporate executives and, you know, usually, hey, appreciate it. Wrestling's garbage. Don't care. Uh, sorry, not a fit. You know, no way in hell. Got all that, right? <laughs> so you heard a lot of no's. Of course. Um, and, you know, my, my, my philosophy on being told no, it's just like if you're asking a good looking girl, you can ask 50 and if 49 say no and one says yes, you won. <laughs> So it's the same when you're applying for a job. You can try to program 20 stations, 19 tell you no, and one says you're good enough to run it, you still want. So I send out my stuff, and I had been a big fan of Bruce Gilbert because at the time I mentioned earlier Rick Scott, the consultant, um, he had a site, sportsradio.com, and he would tell some of these stories about sports radio. Like he'd put promos up from stations. And I remember Bruce Gilbert built the ticket, and is now going to ESPN, and just seemed like a really forward-thinking guy. And the ticket was known nationally as a really big brand. And I said, man, that guy is, like, seems like he really knows his stuff. I'd love to pick that guy's brain. Well, he goes to ESPN. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I got to send this guy something. So I send him the whole thing, and I'm thinking, it's ESPN. There's no way they're even going to get lost. This, ESPN does sports. They don't do sports <laughs> entertainment. There's no way this is going to be a fit. But, you know, I got I to gotta introduce myself and take a shot. I get back a email from Bruce, still have it to this day, at least two pages long, with an in-depth breakdown of the show, what he liked, what he thought needs to be worked on, his 
overall honest opinion that, listen, ESPN is probably not going to be your fit. But I think you have something here. It's just you're, you're going to have to look at other channels. I went, man, this is tremendous that feedback. That had to be gold for you. I, I never get feedback on anything I'm doing outside of what me and my partner think of the show and what fans tell me is good with the show. So just to get a professional opinion at that point was valuable. Uh, and some of those things, I started applying to the show because he was right. We took too long diving into the content. We were taking two minutes with the whole, welcome to the show. It's a great night here in beautiful New York. <laughs> we got a lot to do. And you hear all this meandering and you're like, you Just wasted two minutes. Content. Just get in, right? So some of that stuff was, was valuable. But so I wrote him back and I said, listen, first of all, this breakdown is awesome. The fact that you even listened to it and went through it, I really appreciate it. Secondly, let me just tell you my background. I started in sports radio. I've been working on a rock station now for a year, producing a rock morning show while still doing the wrestling show. Uh, Obviously, I'm pitching the wrestling show, trying to get it somewhere. But in the event there's ever a need somewhere down the road at ESPN on your sports channel, don't exclude me. Please include me because that is my long-term passion. He says, you know, hey, really appreciate that. We'll keep your resume on file and anything ever opens up. And we all hear that. Resumes on file, which means it's usually in the desk. And yeah, nobody likes hearing that. A year later, and I, I mean, I'm in Albany, New York. I'm producing a music morning show, and I'm going, there's no way I'm going to continue doing this. I'm at the point where I went home one day and I said, six months. If I don't breakthrough back to sports within six months i'm going to find another career i can't i don't want to do this and i remember that day when i had that conversation it was almost like a sign a guy i'd worked with uh on my show in poughkeepsie new york calls me and goes you need to put the tv on right now i said why he's like just put on yes network mike and the man dog right now i put it on and Chris and Mike are having a chat saying, uh, you know, we're looking for two producers at the fan. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're going to open it up to anybody and everybody. And uh, you got an opportunity to work at the great radio. St- I'm like, this is the station that made me get in radio. That's right. uh, of course I got to apply. And I'd been sending stuff to them over the years just to stay in contact, say, hey, is there anything I should work on? What do you think? So I had, you know, at least built for five years, I'd been sending my stuff to Mark Chernoff to get just to stay on his radar. And so I hear about the job. I shoot them a note. I go, would love to be considered. And I get a response back. Hey, can you come down tomorrow night to meet with Chris Carlin, who's now doing the mid, uh, midday show, and Eddie Scazzeri, who's still there, and he works on the morning show. And I go down. I hit it off with those guys immediately. Like, we just had a great vibe. And I get back. I, I thought the interview went great. Get home. I'm excited. Can't wait. You know, I was like, this is going to be it. I get home that night, I check my email, and there's a email from out of the blue, Louise Cornetta at ESPN. I've been trying to call you, but your old number doesn't work. Can you please get in touch with me regarding an opportunity at ESPN? And I'm scratching my head. I'm like, I didn't apply for a job at ESPN. <laughs> what is this? They must. It's got to be an error. So I write back. I'm like, hey, uh, you know, I got a message. You're trying to reach me, but uh, I don't know what this is about. She said. Jason, uh, your materials were forwarded to me by Bruce Gilbert. We have an opening here. We need to talk with you. Can you come up for an interview? I'm like, what? 
I haven't. That Bruce Gilbert guy I talked to 13 months ago about exactly. a wrestling show. I'd already forgotten about that. And I thought he said it was a resume on file. Of course I'm on file. <laughs> so I'm a, of course I can come up. So I go up and I have my interview and it gets done. I go back and, uh, you know, I'm talking to family and they're like, so what do you think? I'm like, well, you know, look, ESPN's the Mecca. But honestly, I'm probably probably just a favor to make this Bruce guy happy because, you know, I was the one diamond in the rough guy that applied for the job. But I'm probably not going to get that. But, you know, my heart right now is set on the fan, right? So I get a call like a few days later. Mark Chernoff wants to interview you for the opportunity, a second interview. They had just said on the air on Mike and the Mad Dog, all right, they had 30 people they were interviewing. They're weeding them down to four for these two jobs, and I was one of the final four. I'm like, oh, my God, I've got a 50% chance of getting this gig. <laughs> so, of course, I'll get there. So I go down to meet with Chernoff, and this is true, and it's hysterical. I go to that interview. I miss a turn. I wind up in Long Island. This is a day you don't have cell phones. Okay? Yeah, so there's no there's Twitter, no, Maps, no Facebook, none of that. Nothing. <laughs> so I've got to get off the highway to go to a payphone to call the fan <laughs> to say the guy that's interviewing for the job with Mark Chernoff is lost, can't find I the place. I can't even get there. I'm three hours late. I, that's how far I went, right? So, And I'm driving three hours anyway from Albany, so this has been a six-hour day. And I get on the phone, and the girl's like, listen, Mark, he's got a busy schedule. I said, listen, I've already drove six hours. I don't care if i got to sit in the front lobby and walk with him to his car, but I am getting 10 minutes with him today. I didn't, you know, come this far to not get this at least. If, if he doesn't like me based on our conversation, I can live with that. But I'm not going to lose the opportunity without a conversation. So I get there, and, um, you know, I sit in the lobby for a while. Finally, Mark has a break. He comes out and he says, Jason, you're very uh, persistent. I said, nice to meet you, Mark. He said, you're also very late. I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> and uh, we hit it off. Um, he had worked at a small station in Jersey. I worked at a small station in New York. Started talking about some things. I had instant chemistry. I loved Mark. I thought I could work for him. And uh, I- I'm thinking, I'm going to wind up, if this gig comes, I'm going to take it. And I remember uh, I get the call. Eddie Scazzeri called me to say, Jason, great news. We'd like you to join us at WFAN. And I'm thinking, this is what I've been working for for the last eight years. Life comes full circle. Eddie shared the the salary, which was not great. (laughs) I said, listen, it's not great. I'm going to be honest with you. I uh, did not expect that. However, I love FAN. I will try to make this work. Let me just talk to my, at the time, wife. Tonight when she gets home from work, so because we're going to have to obviously move, and i got to make sure everybody's on board. No problem. Totally understand. I said, I'll call you in the morning. I get home that night, waiting for dinner to come. Uh, you know, she's getting ready. Phone rings. Literally, 6 o'clock, phone rings. Same day, ESPN. Jason, we'd like you to join us to produce game night on ESPN Radio. I'm like, are you kidding me? I didn't even think this was going to be a conversation. So two offers. Same day. Sitting in your hand. The same same day, day. One, a guy I'd been following, reading about for a long time in Bruce Gilbert. The other, who works, who programs the station that I've grown up on loving, and it was known as the best. So I'm like sitting here like, I can't go wrong with either guy I work for. This station is local. This one's national. If I don't do well on radio with ESPN then there are other places inside ESPN. If I don't do good at WFAN, I'm on my butt. Um, (laughs) But either way, 
I, this is as good of a situation. And remember, I had said within six, six months. Six months. And it's like three, two, three months now. Like, it's all setting up. And um, I remember ESPN said, we would like to offer you the opportunity. It starts at X. It was double the offer at FAN. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to tell WFAN no. I, I, this is not what I expected. Like, I thought it'd be within five grand at this point, And I would have probably taken FAN. And I remember the uh, next day I, I called and I told Eddie. I said, if you could have Mark call me, I'd really like to talk with him and share the news and be honest with him. And he said, understood. Mark called. We had a chat. And he said, Jason, listen, you have to take that opportunity. Uh, he said, I have a great feeling about you. You're going to do great things in this business. And we're, our paths are going to cross down the road. And I didn't believe that for a second because <laughs> I'm just trying to get <laughs> from Albany, yes. New York, just to any just place. one day at a time to and get I, this other and opportunity. And it really hit me about, I want to say maybe... Five, seven years later, somewhere in that range, I'm pro- um, programming, I think it was St. Louis, and I flew out to San Diego for a Radio Inc. sports conference, and I'm getting off the stage a panel that I'm on with Scott Masteller, who at the time was running ESPN, Bruce Gilbert, who had run ESPN, who's now in, I think, D.C., or it just went to iHeart. We're coming off, and Mark Chernoff's walking up to go onto the next panel, and it just hit me, I'm like... He said our paths would cross somewhere down the road. I would do good things. I didn't know that about myself at that point. And here I am coming off of this industry conference where the two of us are literally passing each other, shaking hands. I'm like, man, it's, it's wild how this all, this is like storybook stuff that you it can't is. predict. But ultimately, I took the, uh, the opportunity with ESPN and it worked out great. But uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, I... Couldn't have wound up doing great things, too, had I gone to FAN. It was just that was what was right for me at that time. Uh, but, you know, my, my connection to the fan, it's always been strong. Like, to this day, I know Mark. I like Mark. I like the station. Uh, a lot of good talent on that station is the reason why it's, you know, been as successful as it has for a long time. Well, that's an amazing journey of how life comes full circle. Had I not pursued a wrestling circle. show, yes. I don't wind up in that situation. And it's why I tell people, like, Build relationships with people. Get to know them. Listen to them when they share advice with you. You may not agree with all of it, but listen to what they're saying and thank them for the feedback. Because when you build those kind of relationships, it goes a long way. And, you know, to this day, I'm I'm friends with Bruce Gilbert. And, uh, you know, I've I've known Mark uh, as an industry colleague for a long time, you know, and a guy I have a lot of respect for. So... It's, uh, but it all comes from spending the time it does. to know people. And so speaking of advice, I always like to focus on words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And what are some words of wisdom that you would like to share? And it could be life advice or qu- quotes, phrases, mottos that has meant a lot to you. I mean, I'll tell you, one of my favorite quotes is adversity causes some to break, others to break records. I love that line because it's, it's to me, like, especially when I was building stations, I always looked at it as like, there's no bigger test on you than the first year or two of building this thing. It's, you have no idea if the local audience is going to get on board with it. There are other local options. As you're going through all these trials and tribulations, you have to remember what the big picture is and to ultimately get to that final spot where you go, look, we've got something great here now. And to, to get to that, you know, to that spot where you're enjoying success, You've got to go through failure. You've got to go through all those things. And so I'm a big believer in that one. 
the other things are all, you know, industry cliche stuff, but they're very true. It's, you know, have like at the end, at the end of the day, if you're a talent, have something to say. Like uh, there was one great line, say something worth stealing, which I love because that's about those opinions that stand out. Like if I said to you, if I gave you the front page of the newspaper and I took your show yesterday and I said, what's the headline that you'd put on this paper today that would make me want to buy it and open up? Do you have anything that'd be there? If I gave you $100,000 and billboards all over the city to promote your show and what it means, can you define it in five words? Like if you don't have those things that are going to cut through, you know, like, like, like Colin Coward, for example, always says, you know, it's not about being right. It's about being interesting. Pretty simple. That's you can it. get on board with that. And so when you have those things, that's what that's what makes you uh, makes you unique. You know, all these things, you know, everybody's got their own unique skill sets. Some guys are great interviewers, some are great opinionists, some are great teasers, some are formatically a mess. Doesn't mean that there's not beauty in all of it, you know. <laughs> it's uh, you just you have to find a way to connect with a local audience. You do that by having something to say, working your tail off, having passion, and obviously doing your homework. It's it, it when you love sports and you're having sports conversations if you're if you're working at it it should be a labor of love you're watching games because you care about it and if you share that genuine joy for it it'll come through on the air so when's the last time you picked up drumsticks <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not well here i had a drum set i had a drum set uh till about three years ago um we got a dog, and he can't deal with the noise. So, <laughs> so the drums I, I, had to go. No, actually, I, I have them, but I had to put them away. I had to, like, literally pile them up and put them in the storage room. So I still have drum drumsticks and a drum set. The problem is I can't play them. My dog will just... The second I sit down and I even hit the pedal, <laughs> he comes running down the stairs, and it's like he's ready to attack. So that that's it. But when I was in California, I, that was my... If I wasn't traveling to New York... Fiance goes to work, literally open the windows, blast the music, and just drum I'm away. In my element. <laughs> I, you know what? I'm going to play for an hour, have some fun, and just that, that's a great break from dealing with all the radio chaos you deal with on a regular basis. I can imagine. Well, hopefully, we can get you to play the drums for us one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got a lot, I, I'm a little rusty on that regard. <laughs> I'm, I'm no Neil Pert. Back in the day, I could definitely uh, I could command a 10 minute solo. Today, <laughs> I, I got 10 seconds. <laughs> well, at least you can play, though. Yeah. Jason, thank you so much. You got it. I greatly appreciate it. it. This has been an honor. You got it. Greatly appreciate it. You got it. Thank you. True relationships in life are typically more than just a result of making a connection. They're actually built on trust, which takes time. And for many of us, our desire to reach certain goals doesn't follow the timeline that we always want. But as Jason has proven, if you can slow down to listen to advice and be gracious to those individuals for their time while continuing to laugh, learn, and be likable, success and true relationships will definitely find you. Now that finishes episode 103, and you can find more of our content by visiting our Rich Take on Sports Facebook page and YouTube channel where you can easily subscribe. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. 
You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.